You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A little before the fog bank reached us, the color bearers, as by a common impulse, rushed ahead and with a great shout the whole line broke cover and followed them. On they went in the face of a nasty rain of bullets. The rebels broke and ran and we ran after them, heedless of the bullets from the summit. Into holes, over rocks and stumps and logs, over a slight line of earthworks, past a ravine in which were huddled our foes to the number of two hundred or three hundred, who were speedily made prisoners and put under guard, through a camp of huts and shelter tents, and over fires where rebel breakfasts were cooking, onward till the dense fog shut in again over and around us, and we must stop and feel our way. It grew light again, and the bullets again began to sing amongst us. The fog seemed to break where we were. We could not see the valley, but it got clear on our level and above us. An earthwork was sighted ahead. Behind the last knoll, the line was steadied and well closed up. As we showed over this knoll, we were greeted with a sharp volley, which developed into a steady fire. Our line stopped and commenced firing. Barnum of the 149th, shouting to his men to follow him, rushed up the knoll, waving his sword above his head. A bullet struck his sword arm, and it fell by his side, but the line had caught his spirit, and it went on now across good ground and with a regular front. The little white house on the point came in sight. We could see Chattanooga, and the watchers there could see us. All energies were bent to reach the house. Again the rebel line broke and ran. In the yard of this farmhouse were two Napoleon guns, and their caissons nearby were well supplied with ammunition. Our line here wheeled sharp to the right, following the enemy in plain view, and entered some woods. The fog closed in on us again. The whole of this charge could be plainly seen with glasses from Chattanooga, for while the fog was thick below, Shutting in the sides of the mountain, our elevation was in plain sight. It is said that as we rounded the point in this last rush, the watchers in Chattanooga and on Orchard Knob, anxiously watching our appearance, were almost beside themselves with exultation, and that even General Thomas so far forgot his gravity as to throw his hat into the air with a great shout. Lieutenant Albert R. Green, 78th New York Infantry.
Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 430th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. As you guys will recall, at the end of the last show, we set the stage for Hooker's capture of Lookout Mountain. Fighting Joe was delighted he had been given the green light to assault the looming, imposing mass of earth and stone. The broken pontoon bridge that had stranded Osterhaus's division west of Lookout had given Hooker a chance to redeem the reputation tarnished six months earlier at Chancellorsville, because now, here at Chattanooga, in seizing Lookout Mountain, Hooker would perform a feat of arms that would be legendary because it was generally considered impossible. By November 24th, Hooker's force consisted of a division from each of the three armies represented at Chattanooga. Besides Peter Osterhaus's division from the Army of the Tennessee, Hooker had Charles Cruft's division of the Army of the Cumberland and John Geary's division of the Army of the Potomac. One of Geary's soldiers remembered that the men were called into line of battle without breakfast that morning, and the announcement of what Hooker wanted them to do made their stomachs drop. What? asked a veteran Yankee soldier in disbelief. Does the general expect us to fly? The prospect did indeed appear daunting. Everyone who saw Lookout came away deeply moved by the majestic and rugged grandeur of the mountain. Forty-five years earlier, Elias Cornelius, a young minister who had ventured into this still unsettled region to convert the Indians to Christianity, climbed the heights and pinned his impressions of the view. Quote, The summit of Lookout Mountain overlooks the whole country, and to those who can be delighted with the view of an endless forest penetrated by the windings of a bold river, interspersed with hundreds of fertile prairies and broken by many ridges and mountains, furnishes a landscape which yields to few others in extent, variety, or beauty. Even the natives had not been insensible to its charms, for the name in the Cherokee language is literally mountains looking at each other. The name itself is a bit misleading since it's not a single mountain in the commonly understood sense, but rather more of a long, towering ridge that extended southward from the Tennessee River some 85 miles. Quite wide along its southern reaches, Lookout Mountain narrowed as it neared the river. There it ended, coming to a point, or nose as the locals called it not more than 200 yards wide and 1,800 feet above the Tennessee River. From the riverbank, the mountain rose at a 45-degree angle to a height of 800 feet. Timber blanketed this initial rise. There were numerous laurel bushes and rough limestone rocks jutting from the thin soil of red clay. After that initial rise, the slope rose sharply, about two-thirds of the way between the river bank and the summit, then abruptly changed and became relatively level, giving the appearance of a small hump when viewed from Chattanooga. That feature terminated in a ledge, or bench, between 150 and 300 feet wide, which extended for several miles around both sides of the mountain. From the bench, the slope again became steep. 
500 or 600 feet of timber and outcrops brought one abruptly to the Palisades. A war correspondent penned one of the best descriptions of the Palisades, writing they were, quote, a ridge of dark, cold, gray rocks, bare even of moss, which rise to the height of 50 or 60 feet, overhanging, arch-like, the beholder who looks up at them from their base, and which seen from the valley, have the appearance of a crown encircling a human brow. The Confederate lines on lookout curved around the shoulders of the mountain, about halfway up between the river and the rocky summit. There, on the shoulders of the mountain, the slope moderated enough to permit an occasional house and even a farm or two whose fantastic views compensated for the rocky soil. Indeed, the shoulders of Lookout were the proper location for the rebel defenses, rather than on the impressive crest up above the Palisades, since the steep upper slopes would mean the defenders on the crest would be unable to fire down on attackers scaling the slopes below. The Confederate lines, bolstered by log breastworks, curved from the east slope of the mountain around the point or nose on the north end, and then extended several hundred yards along the west side of the mountain. The Confederate defenses faced downhill, and although that orientation may have seemed the most logical, it was just the feature of the rebel works of which Hooker planned to take advantage, since once the Federal soldiers got up on the shoulders of the mountain, on the same level as the defenders, they could advance along the slopes, outflanking the rebels. Hooker sent Osterhaus straight ahead, advancing west to east against the Confederates picketing the east bank of Lookout Creek. Hooker sent Geary marching southward, up Lookout Valley. After a couple of miles, Geary's column swung eastward, crossed the creek, and swung still further around and up the slope, until the entire division faced northward along the side of the mountain. Geary's men on the far right flank found themselves advancing along the shoulder of the mountain, right along the base of the vertical rock face of the Palisades, and from there the Federal line ran downhill until the left flank nearly touched the banks of Lookout Creek. In that way, Geary's men moved along the mountainside, scrambling over and around boulders, tree trunks, and laurel bushes, until they ran right into the flank of the Confederate line, which, as we said, was oriented so it was facing downhill. That meant the rebel soldiers' attention was naturally focused down the slope, where Osterhaus's Federals were toiling uphill. Many of the Confederates weren't even aware of Geary's presence on their flank until the Yankees had advanced to point-blank range. Dozens of rebel soldiers were captured, while others fought as best they could and then fled along the mountainside. Now and then a Confederate officer would manage to get a few companies, or a regiment, swung back to face Geary's Federals head-on. But each time the Yankees out on Geary's right, along the base of the Palisades, came crashing down on the rebels' exposed uphill flank, and each Confederate position collapsed like those before. 
The combat became a running fight along the west slope of the mountain and then around the curving north slope of Lookout's nose. As the rebels fled Geary's flank attack, Osterhaus advanced and moved in on Geary's left as the Federal line, now a two-division front, swung around the point of the mountain. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When the Yanks advanced on us in three lines of battle, we had but one thin line and no reserve. The brigade extended from the perpendicular cliffs down the rugged mountainside, north toward the Tennessee River. As the enemy would advance and drive us from one position, we would fall back a short distance, reform, get positions behind the rocks, and give it to them again. Many of our boys were captured that day, on account of our line holding its position until the enemy were so near that it was almost certain death to run. This was one of the few times in battle that it took a braver man to run than it did to stand, because those who remained behind the rocks could surrender in safety, and those who ran would draw the fire of the heavy Yankee line. It was near the Craven House that our line was formed, when the blue coats crowded us and came very close before our line gave way. Just as we started to fall back, the color bearer, who had bravely carried our regimental flag through many hot places, fell dead. One of the other boys, seeing this, turned back and grasped the colors when he too went down and fell across the former with the color staff under him. By this time, the enemy was almost upon the flag, when a gallant youth from South Mississippi turned back and, running to within a few steps of the enemy's line, seized the colors, breaking the staff off short, and ran after his regiment, waving the flag and hallowing at the top of his voice. It appeared that the entire Yankee line was shooting at him, but he soon regained his regiment and, with the short flag staff in his hand, mounted a large rock and waved it as high as he could reach, at the same time calling out that old saying so familiar to soldiers, Rally round the flag, boys! Which they were very prompt to do. 
That night, we were relieved by other troops, and the little handful of us that was left was moved down into to the valley. And there in the shadow of Lookout Mountain, that dim, moonlit night, that little short flagstaff was stuck in the ground, and the boys crowded around it with saddened hearts and recounted the eventful and dangerous scenes of the day. Many of them showed where miniballs had cut their hats, coats, or blankets. The meeting at that flag was one never to be forgotten. Private John W. Simmons, 27th Mississippi Infantry. On the northern end of Lookout Mountain, the shoulder broadened into a shelf of land where a man named Cravens had built a house and cultivated a small farm. There the Confederates rallied to make a defensive stand. By this time, one entire rebel brigade had been wrecked and another was in bad shape. Few additional reserves were available on this end of Bragg's line, and Division Commander John K. Jackson was at least according to one of his subordinates, unduly slow in bringing up what was available. The Yankees' fighting blood was up. They had for some hours now been driving the rebels out of a position many had believed unconquerable, and they were beginning to feel a sense of invincibility that, other things being equal, was proving to be a self-fulfilling prophecy. For Geary's men, members of one of the Hard Luck Corps of the Hard Luck Army of the Potomac, driving the rebels like this was a new sensation, and by all accounts, they seemed to revel in it, throwing themselves at the Confederate lines with reckless abandon. However, for Osterhaus's troops from the Army of the Tennessee, such confidence was ingrained from their successes out in Mississippi. Here, federal aggressiveness, numbers, and artillery support from batteries across the river at Moccasin Bend, combined with Confederate exhaustion, meant the Cravens House line collapsed like the smaller and shorter-lived Confederate defensive stands before it. The Federals swept around to the east side of Lookout Mountain and down the shoulder on that side, pivoting on the right flank at the base of the Palisades, while the downslope brigades swept up hundreds of prisoners. Then, as if on cue, the low-hanging clouds that had kept the mountains socked in with fog all day suddenly lifted, revealing a great natural amphitheater encompassing Lookout, the plain and river below, the town of Chattanooga, and across the way, Missionary Ridge, stretching out like a long, straight fold of the earth, toward far-off Tunnel Hill, which Sherman's men were even then approaching. Down in Chattanooga, and in the Army of the Cumberland's lines around it, ears had been cocked and eyes occasionally turned toward lookout for most of the day, as the Federals listened to the rattle and crash of their comrades' battle. Sometimes they could see flickering lines of flashes pierce the fog as the combat rounded the nose of the mountain. Then, as the clouds moved aside and the sun broke through for the first time that day to light up the mountainside, the watchers hundreds of feet below were awestruck by the sight of a battle spread out before them as if painted on canvas. 
There, up on the slopes of Lookout, were the fleeing Confederates and the pursuing, swarming ranks of blue-uniformed soldiers. The scene, clearly visible through the leafless treetops, provoked deafening cheers from the men of the Army of the Cumberland. After a little while, it became apparent that the fire was coming nearer. A white mist, the remnant of the night storm, still hung about the nose of Lookout. Now and then, the wind swept it aside till we could see the crest and sometimes the palisades below. Then the white veil would settle over it all, and only the rattle of musketry would come out of the sunlit cloud. All at once it flashed upon us that Hooker was trying to take Lookout, was taking it as we were soon assured. After a while, faint cheers could be heard. How intently we listened. That's no cornbread yell, went along the line, as every eye and every field glass was turned toward the cloud-veiled mountain. The two vast armies of Grant and Bragg, in breathless suspense, awaited the outcome of the contest. Again and again the mud-sill cheer rang out, each time nearer the palisaded crest. Soon a faint gray line appeared on the slope of Lookout. Even with the naked eye, it was apparent that it was disorganized and falling back. Through the smoke and mist, the colors sometimes flashed. The gray masses fell slowly back, and the line of blue appeared. As the old flag was recognized, Grant's army broke out into cheer after cheer, which must have been inspiring to Hooker's men and appalling to the enemy. With scarcely a halt to reform, the line of blue moved forward. The Confederates fell slowly back, rallying and breaking again, until, with a sudden rush, they made for a line of works, which seemed extended from the foot of the Palisades down the slope between the timber and the open field. Here they made a last stand. With a rush, our brave fellows swept up to the works, but so stubborn was the resistance that for a moment it seemed to us that the lines and colors were intermingled. But the enemy's colors soon broke to the rear and disappeared in the woods. The clouds settled down over the scene, and only intermittent firing was kept up. Until nightfall and even after, a few scattering shots were heard on the slope. Then all was still. The audacity of the plan and the suddenness of its execution paralyzed the enemy and amazed those who witnessed its execution. Lieutenant Albion W. Torgy, 105th Ohio Infantry Before we move on, we just want to explain a couple of references that Lieutenant Torgy made in that extended quote. When he said that the Federals down below realized it was no cornbread cheer coming from up on lookout, he of course meant it wasn't the rebel yell. And when he said that what they were hearing instead was the mudsill cheer, he probably meant that it was the distinctive hurrah used by Federal troops. 
You see, back then, mudsill was a derogatory term used to convey the idea that something was the worst of its kind, and it was used by the Confederates to refer to Union soldiers, who they liked to think were the dregs of Northern society. But although the Confederates meant it as an insult, the Federal soldiers themselves turned it around and wore it as a kind of badge of honor. In any case, we thought a little clarification might be in order regarding cornbread and mudsill cheers. So, there you go. But to get back to the action... About 400 yards beyond the Cravens' house, well onto the mountain's eastern flank, the Confederates had erected a cross-slope line of breastworks, and there, with the aid of a fresh brigade just coming up to join the defense, they were able to halt the Federal advance. A few companies of rebels even managed to scramble up to the base of the Palisades themselves, where they countered the Yankees there. Some of the federal units were, by this time, running low on ammunition, and for most, elation was now giving way to exhaustion. In addition, another bank of clouds had quickly lowered the curtain that the sunburst had briefly raised for the spectators below, and so the slopes were once again plunged into a murky, misty fog. When Major General John Palmer, commanding 14th Corps in the valley below, sent to find out if Hooker needed assistance, Fighting Joe replied, quote, Can hold the line I am now on. Can't advance. Some of my troops out of ammunition. Can't replenish. However, since Hooker was now on the eastern side, or Chattanooga side, of Lookout Mountain, Getting more of whatever he needed wasn't a problem. Within a couple of hours, by the time darkness had brought a close to the fighting on lookout, Hooker was reinforced by a brigade of 14th Corps troops, and arrangements were being made for direct resupply of ammunition and rations by way of Chattanooga. For the Confederates, the battle for Lookout Mountain had been a sorry affair. When Bragg had sent Hardee over to the Army's right the evening before, Major General Carter Stevenson had succeeded to the overall command of Lookout's defenses, including Jackson's division. However, Stevenson was unacquainted with Jackson's deployment and unfamiliar with the lay of the land on the slopes of the mountain. And since he took over command after nightfall on the 23rd, he had no chance to inspect the sector by daylight before the battle was joined. The Confederate troops who did most of the fighting belonged to Jackson's division. His performance that day was criticized by more than one of his subordinates, and the controversy nearly led to several duels. In the end, though, the matter was dropped. From the evidence that remains, Jackson's performance on the 24th appears to have been nothing special, but probably about as good as could be expected under the circumstances. As for Braxton Braxton Bragg, he placed a relatively low estimate on the importance of Lookout Mountain. He wasn't happy with the poor showing of the Confederate forces tasked with holding Lookout but he was by no means inclined to up the ante in the contest to hold the mountain. In fact, since the loss of Lookout Valley and the opening of the Federal's cracker line a month before, 
Lookout Mountain had been of no use to Bragg in denying the Yankees their hardtack, nor was it necessary in order to secure the Confederates' own supply line. As we already noted, Bragg's own line of supply, the Western and Atlantic Railroad that ran down to Atlanta, was located behind Missionary Ridge at the opposite end of the lines from Lookout Mountain. The summit of Lookout had been of some use as a signal and observation point for the Confederates, that is, when the weather was clear. But the artillery posted on the heights had come to have little more than nuisance value against the Federals in their lines at Chattanooga. And so, in the end, by mid-afternoon on the 24th, Bragg had decided to order the rebel troops on the eastern slopes of the lookout to disengage and withdraw, thereby giving Hooker's Federals uncontested control of the heights. In fact, Bragg decided to issue orders to all the Confederates holding Chattanooga Valley in front of Chattanooga and have them pull back to the east to Missionary Ridge. That evening, Ulysses S. Grant wired news of the day's successes to Washington. In response, he received telegrams from both Abraham Lincoln and General-in-Chief Henry Halleck congratulating him, but still expressing concern over Burnside's situation up at Knoxville. Lincoln concluded his message by urging Grant to, quote, remember Burnside. Halleck was more emphatic, telling Grant, quote, I know that you will do all in your power to relieve him. Lincoln and Halleck both made their point that Washington would accept no dawdling when it came to Grant defeating Bragg at Chattanooga and sending aid to Burnside. Their prodding was hardly necessary, since Sam Grant wasn't a man to dawdle. He knew what he wanted to happen the next day, the 25th, and by midnight on the 24th, once things had quieted down around headquarters, he began issuing the orders to make those things happen. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Small But Important Riots, The Cavalry Battles of Aldi, Middleburg, and Upperville by Robert F. O'Neill. This is another Gettysburg-related book. Well, not the Battle of Gettysburg, but the Gettysburg Campaign. O'Neill's book, which just came out this year, looks at the cavalry battles that took place over the span of five days or so in June 1863 in Virginia, and places them within the context of the Gettysburg Campaign. It's a good read. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade and how to support the podcast in that way, just like Theo G., Stephen St. A., Jan Lee W., Jack R., Jeff M., Gary P., and Richard. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.